All right, guys, grab your seats. If you have your Bibles, grab them. Matthew chapter 6. Over the next two weeks, we're going to kind of do a mini-series. I had a debate with a pastor friend of mine whether or not I could call a two-week series a series or not. But I'm calling it a series. Uh, we're, we're going to walk through the Lord's Prayer over the next two weeks. Hopefully I don't need to convince you of the need to think about, learn about, talk about the need for us to be a praying people. I realized how much work my prayer life needed when I was in seminary, and I was in this class called Personal Spiritual Disciplines, and one of the assignments was to spend four hours in solitude praying. I was like, okay, and then write a paper about my experience, and so I remember sitting in solitude and with a Bible and a notebook and, and praying, and it took about two hours before my mind was clear enough to actually really engage and be prayerful. It took about two hours for me to stop thinking, oh, i got to do that later. Oh, i got to go do that later. Oh, yeah, I've got that situation going on. My mind just spinning and going and thinking about all the things going on. It took two hours to purge myself of all that so that I could actually focus on praying. It was then I realized, man, i got to get better at this. Jesus commands us to pray. He commands us to be a praying people. Praying, he doesn't seem to present as an option. But when he talks about the Lord's Prayer, he's going to say, but when you pray, pray like this. Not if you're going to pray, but when you pray, there's a command to pray. We as modern people, increasingly, we don't pray. We don't pray, probably because for the most part, we have everything we need in the most affluent, richest nation in the history of the world. We have everything we need. We're comfortable. We have very few moments of crisis. And outside of that, we're incredibly busy. We're busier than ever in history, moving from event to event, from thing to thing. And we're distracted by how fast-paced our society is and having technology at our fingertips, at the ready, at all times. And so we really find we don't really have a great need to pray. And then we, when we do, we don't really have a lot of time to pray. And when we do pray, it is often because there is an urgent situation that we are powerless to do anything of our own volition, right? There's some situation, someone's in the hospital, someone got in a car wreck, someone's going into surgery, someone's got cancer, something's going on that I'm powerless to fix. And so uh, we send out texts, everyone pray for this, right? Because we, we can't do anything, so it's like our last-ditch effort. We want to pray that God would do something about it. And because we are such a prayerless society... We, I think, are actually all desperately looking for intimacy with God. And I think it's a direct result. Like our lack of closeness and nearness, feeling closeness and nearness to God, is a direct result of our prayerlessness. Because of that, I think, we go from book to book, study to study, conference to conference, camp to camp, Song to song, whatever gives us that spiritual high, we're always looking for the next one, the next book, the next conference, the next camp, the next thing that will help rekindle and reconnect me to God. And so we jump from thing to thing because we don't have that intimacy and closeness and connection with God. But I'm going to contend with you this morning that the pathway to get that, the pathway to feel that tightness, that closeness, that connection with God Almighty... It's not in books or conferences or camps. All those things are good, but the pathway is through prayer. And I don't mean quick prayers here and there. I don't mean prayers for the sick and for those in need. I mean serious alone time, undistracted where the cell phone and the watch come off and you don't have those things near you. You just have a Bible and like a notepad and you pray for an hour. But because our lives are so often so busy... We find ourselves settling for less. And instead of modeling our prayer lives after what we're going to find that I think is, is, is this deep, robust, theologically rich, weighty, difficult to pray prayer like the Lord's Prayer. Instead of kind of modeling our prayers after that, because we're so fast-paced and because we have not really learned this skill, instead we have modeled our prayer life after cheap, generic prayers 
that prayer doesn't have the appearance of weight, right? The, the appearance of like wisdom, but really lack true substance. Similar to the serenity prayer. You may have heard this. Most of you have heard this. The prayer says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference. We hear that and we're like, ooh, Mufasa. Right, say it again. But that prayer is so tame. It's so easy. An agnostic could pray that without blinking. A secular humanist could pray that without blinking. It's a prayer that costs you nothing. A prayer that's really more fortune cookie than it is prayer. The Lord's Prayer, on the other hand, is quite revolutionary. It is a prayer that is heard around the world. It is a prayer that turns the world upside down. If you want real, true intimacy and closeness to God, your prayer life should look less like the serenity prayer and more like the Lord's Prayer. If we as a church begin faithfully praying prayers modeled after the Lord's Prayer, I think it will change us. Like genuinely and truly, if we pray prayers modeled after this, I think it would change us as a church and change us as individuals. I'm not even talking about like what God would do in response to us praying that way. I'm just saying how it would change us if we did it. Change our hearts and lives. I think it would truly revolutionize us. So let's dig into the Lord's Prayer together. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and pens these words. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Some of y'all were like really irritated that I didn't finish the prayer. And it's like incomplete resonating in you. So we're going to get to it next week, though. Don't worry. Before Jesus teaches us how to pray, he starts with some warnings, some things that we need to not do, right? And that's really verses 5 and 6. So we say, so he says, when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites, because they love to stand and pray in synagogues on the street corners, right? They want to be seen by other people. But I say to you, they've received their reward. Go and pray in your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And he's in secret will reward you. The first warning Jesus gives us is not to pray in order to impress people. When you pray, do not pray to impress people. In Jesus' day, right, there are people standing on the street corners or they're praying out loud. That's a very common thing to be walking through the town and seeing people praying out loud all over the street corners and near the temple and near the synagogues. And it doesn't take being a divine being to realize that those people are probably doing that to be seen, right? It doesn't take like special, powerful knowledge to know that people standing on street corners praying out loud are probably really doing that because they want the attention and praise of men. And while most of us in this room are probably not tempted to go out and stand on street corners and pray, we still need to be guarded that when we pray aloud, when we are in group settings and we pray, We need to be careful and guarded that we are not praying in such a way that we are seeking to impress other people. Impress them by how smart we sound, by how theologically rich we sound. And we we need to make sure we're not trying to impress them by how intimate and close with God we sound or how long we can pray or how confident we can pray or anything else. When we pray, we have an audience of one. And we should not be concerned with how all the people around us are hearing us or uh, thinking about what we're praying or judging our prayers, or rather we need to be praying to God and to God alone and worried about him alone. Jesus makes the point that if your goal, if your heart is looking for the praise of men, if you want people to take notice of you, then you will get it. You can have that, he's saying. 
People will notice. People will think you're great. People will think you sound really smart or whatever. But that's all you get. That's your reward. God does not answer the prayers prayed by men for the praise of men. Instead, their reward is the praise itself. Instead, he says, when we pray, we need to be alone. We need to be private. We need to be in secret. And if you've been praying in secret, right, you've been praying in secret by yourself, and then you come out and you start telling everybody about how great your prayer time was in secret, you've kind of defeated the purpose, right, because you've been bragging about how you've been praying in secret. So don't do that either. Rather, pray in private. And don't let anybody know about it. When you pray in private, there is no temptation to pose When you pray in private, there is no temptation to pretend to be something you are not, right? Because who cares? Like God knows everything about you. You're not hiding anything from him. So there's no temptation to pose or pretend to be something you're not. It is easier to be vulnerable, to be real, to speak from the heart. We can worry less about speaking articulately, articulately, I can't even do it now, and we can focus solely on God in our hearts. A consistent private prayer life is the pathway to intimacy with God. You see, if we can find the time to slow down and really spend dedicated, undistracted, vulnerable time with God in private, guys, your walk with Jesus will go to new and greater heights than you ever thought possible. You will be revolutionized and shocked. So don't pray to impress people, pray in private. And God will hear you. Not only must we pray to, pray, not pray to impress people, but we also must fight the temptation to pray in such a way that it attempts to impress God. Verse 7, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they're going to be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. So two, do not pray to impress God. <laughs> You're not impressive. Like, God is not like, man. This guy gets it. Like, you're not impressive. Don't try to impress God with your prayers. It is easy to think sometimes that if we pray for longer periods of time or we use lofty speech or super theologically rich language, that God will be impressed enough to incline his ear toward us and listen. That we've got to do something to get God's attention, and so we've got to pray specifically in a way to get God to listen and answer. Sometimes I'll hear, I'll hear people say, you know, Brent, I, I'm not really good at praying, or I don't really know how to pray. And I just want to say, like, you don't know how to talk? I think the reason people think that, that they're not good at praying or don't know how to pray is because they have heard people pray in a way that they can't replicate. Right? And so maybe they've heard someone pray in King James English. Right? I had to write this down because I can't do this on my own. And they were like, Thy Lord, we beseech you today to commence with thine promise to deliver thine servant from the hand of iniquity. And you're like, now, is thine me? Or thy, you, know, you, don't, you don't know, right? Or maybe you've heard someone pray like this really theological prayer. And they were like, omniscient Father, we bring our supplication before your benevolence to entreat you because of your propitiation of the blood of your son. And you're like, what did you just say? Or maybe you've heard the really super spiritual, like, hippie guy who like, likes to say like a lot in their prayer. And they're like, Daddy God, we are, like, so moved by, like, how awesome you are. Like, we are just, like, awestruck, like, by, like, your, like, love, like, God, like, God, like, aren't you just, like, so, like, like wonderful? Like, some of you are offended. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> you're like, that's me. Here's the thing, you do not have to pray like any of those things, right? Like, you don't have to be King James in your prayers. You don't have to be, like, say like a million times or, like, be real, like, gushy or whatever. And you don't have to, like, use these big words that you don't know what they mean. Like, you just got to be you, right? Like, like, God knows you. He wants you to be you. You should pray with the same voice, same vocabulary, and same link that you would talk to a good friend. Because your words, your vocabulary, the length at which you pray, the tone of voice, none of that impresses God. God doesn't care how you sound. It doesn't make you more spiritual or it doesn't make you more likely to be heard. 
God does not want some idyllic version of you. He doesn't want the King James version of you or some idyllic version of you. He wants the real, genuine you. He wants to hear you in your heart. He wants you to pray. He wants you to talk like you talk, the way he made you. He wants you to pour out your heart just like you would to a dear friend. Don't be someone else. God wants you. And then verse 8 says, God already knows what you need before you ask. So you don't have to go on and on and fill him in like it's a news report, like, God, let me catch you up on what's been going on. And he's like, you just wasted 30 minutes. I know all this. Like, we don't need to catch God up like it's some news report. We don't need to reveal to him all the relevant information. He understands the situation better than you do. He already knows. So that's three, right? Like, prayer is not a news report for God. He knows what you need before you ask. So then, it begs the question, why ask if he already knows? Why do we ask God for things in prayer when he already knows what we need before we ask? Two reasons. One, if you do not ask, you have no reason to expect God to answer. If you do not ask, you have no reason to expect God will answer. And two, God wants you to ask so that you can know and be reminded that he hears you and he provides for you. He wants to be known by you as provider. How often does it happen that we quickly say a prayer for somebody, a prayer request we saw on Facebook or someone texted or something comes in our mind and we pray for something real quick and we don't think about it anymore. And that prayer gets answered, but we never really think about the fact that it got answered, right? Because we prayed it real quick and forgot about it and moved on. Right? That happens all the time. And we either chalk it up to coincidence or we never acknowledge that it even happened. But one of the amazing things that you would discover if you began to journal your prayers if you began to write down everything that you were praying about, every prayer request that you had, and you kept up with them, and you went back and kind of looked through them, you would find, and you would be stunned at all the things that you prayed for and in all the fascinating, interesting ways that God answered. But we are miss out on seeing God as provider because we forget we even prayed it and we don't give him credit. God wants you to pray. So that you can see him as provider. So, don't use your prayers to impress people. Don't use your prayers to impress God. And do not use your prayers as a news report to update, thing, update God on things he already knows. Now let's get to verse 9. Jesus say it, says, when you pray, pray then like this. And he proceeds with the Lord's Prayer. Now, let me say this. The Lord's Prayer is primarily... A model prayer, right? He says, pray like this. He doesn't say, pray this. Pray like this. This is a model prayer. It's not something that we're meant to pray over and over and over and over and over again. It's not something that's meant to make us robotic. It's not something that we overflow from the heart to say this. This is a prayer that is primarily aimed to teach us. Here's how you pray like this similar to this, these types of things. That said, this prayer also, I think, functions, uh, not just like a teacher, but it also uh, can align our hearts kind of back in place. There's this Latin phrase that's been used. It says, in curvatus sensei. And it means that the curve of the soul. And it's been used to say that the Lord's Prayer realigns our souls like a chiropractor realigns our spines. The curve back into it. And so sometimes memorizing this prayer, which we've probably all in this room have done without even trying. Saying this prayer, letting it teach you, letting it form you. Saying it in hard times can align our souls back together and kind of help us out. But it's primarily meant to be on model prayer. One more observation before we dive into it. There are no singular personal pronouns in this entire prayer. Now, some of you said, what is a singular personal pronoun? Uh, I refer you to Elaine Hamblin, our resident English teacher. It's the word I. There is no I's in this prayer. Listen to it. 
our Father. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Every one of them is plural. There's no singular personal pronoun. There's no eyes. You see, prayer should remind us that we're not alone. That's really intentional of Jesus here. Prayer should remind us that we're not alone. Prayer should kill individualism. And it should remind us that we're in this together with other people. That this is not just about my personal experience, but rather I'm part of a family, I'm part of a church, I'm part of a bigger group of people. That this whole thing is bigger than just me. When our prayers are often marked by treating God like a genie that we just go to, rub on a little bit, and say, God, I need this. Jesus is showing us that our prayers should never be primarily focused on ourselves. That is to say, we should be praying for other people. It is also a reminder that we have other people to lean on. right? That we're not walking this path alone, but that there are other people that call God father too and that I'm not in this wilderness by myself I have brothers and sisters to lean on in a world that is becoming more and more all about the individual all about the individual experience the Lord reminds us that we are a collective and that everything isn't about me rather it's about us it's a lesson we really need to learn in the 21st century five let's jump in prayer begins with humility prayer begins with humility God reveals himself by many names and titles throughout the entire Bible, right? Lord, God most high, almighty, king, the judge of all the earth. El Shaddai, all these different words. But when Jesus teaches us to pray, he doesn't use any of those words. Instead, he uses the very personal title, Father. He uses Father, our Father in heaven. Jesus is reminding us that God is not some anonymous deity or impersonal force, that he is rather personal, that he's near, that he's not just like high and removed from us, but rather he is a father to us, approachable, he is listening and caring. But he's also saying that he's not just father, he is our father who is in heaven. That is, that he's not just some deity, this is the God who rules the heavens and the earth. This is the God who sits on a throne on high. This is the God enthroned over all of creation, receiving unending worship from angelic hosts. This is the God who is transcendent, meaning he's utterly distinct from everything else in creation. He is one of a kind, meaning even though we have a relationship with this God as a father, only through the redeeming work of Jesus, we should not think of him as grandfather in the sky or the man upstairs. Rather, he is the almighty God of the universe, and that should have weight to it. It's an important first lesson that how we approach God in prayer matters. How we come to God in prayer matters. We approach God personally and intimately, yes, but we do so humbly and with reverence, not flippantly, because he is the king of the universe. And even the son, even sons before their dad, who is the king, show reverence and honor. So we approach God with humility, both in our heart, but in our physical posture. Not because we have to, but our physical posture helps align our hearts to be humble. It's the reason we close our eyes. There's no rule that says you've got to close your eyes to pray. But it's the reason we close our eyes. It's the reason we bow our heads. It's the reason we hold out our hands or put our hands together. So that our, our physical body... It's helping align our inner self to be humble. It also means that when we approach God, we do so on his terms. We pray in Jesus' name because it is through Jesus that we have the ability to approach Jesus because, or approach the Father because Jesus is our intercessor. He is our priest by which we come to God. It means that when we approach God, we only refer to God with the names and titles that God himself has revealed to us to be used at a time in history when inclusion and diversity are all the rage and in many ways that's a good thing right like Christians are pro-diversity we're pro-women's rights minority rights and we're pro-diversity and opportunities and all that we're pro all that stuff but there comes a point when it slides into silliness and outrageousness 
You might remember it was a year or so ago when this man went into the halls of Congress to pray before Congress opened up session. And he's some pastor somewhere, and he prayed, and he ended his prayer by, I don't know if he said in Jesus' name, but he said, you know, in Jesus' name, amen, and a woman. And I remember seeing that and, and laughing and feeling like it was a joke. And it's like, bro, do you realize that ain't, ain't, that's not about a man? Like, and so it was this big uproar, and it was silly. But it is those same people who want to, for us to pray to God our mother, our mother who are in heaven. It is those same people who want to use whatever name for God that they think will be more inclusive and more diverse. And we reject this. We reject this completely, not because we devalue women or motherhood. We incredibly value those things. We reject this, not because God isn't motherly, like I'm sure that he is. He has affection for us. He's nurturing of us. Women are created in God's image, so their mothering comes from God. He is certainly motherly. We reject this language because God has never revealed or called himself a mother, and we do not think ourselves so smart or so cultured or so advanced or so holy as to call God something other than he has called himself. We do not, in the name of inclusion, call God mommy because we, in a posture of humility, only call God what he calls himself. We only refer to God by the names and titles he's given to himself. It's important that when we pray, we do so with seriousness and humility. Because while we are talking to our adopted father, we are also talking to the king of the universe. Who has been kind enough to listen. Like this big massive God who's spoken the world into existence has been kind enough to listen to the little peon that is you. This little bitty insignificant thing in the universe that he has chosen to make significant and listen to you and to hear you and to answer your prayers. We should understand how incredible of access we have and approach the throne of grace both with boldness and courage because he is our father, but also with humility and reverence because he is the king of the universe and deserves such. Six, the first request puts God at the center of our prayers. The first request in the Lord's Prayer puts God at the center of our prayers. So we have our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, what does it mean to pray, hallowed be your name? It is a weird, weird phrase. If we think on it, hallow is not a word we use anymore, right? No one says that. It's an old, archaic, old English word we don't use. The only time we use it is when we say the Lord's Prayer or when we talk about Halloween. That's the only times. Hallow simply means to make holy. So Halloween, or All Hallows' Eve, is a holy night. It's just a holy night for the other team, not us. When we pray, hallowed be your name, sometimes we think this is like adoration. Oh, this part of the prayer is like worship. But that is not what this is. This is not a moment of praise in the prayer. This is actually a request or an appeal to God. Hallowed be your name is a request. Jesus' first request is nothing about himself. It is not to fulfill some need he has. It is not personal at all. His first request is that God would make his name hallowed or that God would make his name holy. You see, when we talk about God's name, what do we mean? What does it mean that we would... We would ask God to make his name hallowed. Hallowed be your name. What does that mean? When we talk about someone's name, we mean their reputation, right? Right? Like sometimes you might say to your kids, y'all behave yourself. Don't solely my good name. Don't ruin our name. Don't you go messing up my name. And by that we mean don't solely or ruin or mess with my reputation, what it means to be a Wilson. I tell my kids, y'all act like Wilsons here. Now some of y'all may think that's good or bad. I don't know. But... And so it's this reputation. Throughout the Old Testament, there are so many examples, hundreds of verses that show us that God is acting in every situation primarily in order to preserve and further or reveal his name, his reputation, to spread awareness of his character, his glory, and his holiness. Look at Isaiah 48. We read this at the beginning of the service. But listen. Why is he doing what he's doing? For my name's sake, 
I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Why is God not cutting you off? Why is he not being angry at you? It's for his name's sake, not yours, first and foremost. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. Why has he given you trials? For his sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is first and foremost concerned for his fame, for his glory, for his holiness. His name is, that he wants his name to be represented accurately, that his name, his reputation would spread, that his glory, the Old Testament says this phrase a lot, especially in the Psalms, that his glory would cover the dry lands as the waters cover the seas. So Jesus is teaching us to pray, and he's saying that our prayers should begin centered on God. They should begin by asking God to so move and to so act in the world that people everywhere would value God's glory, esteem his holiness, and treasure his character above all else. God, make it so that everyone hallows your name. Make it so that your name would be hallowed at my work, at my school, in my home, at my church, at the ball field. Make your glory, make your holiness, your reputation known in and through my whole life and everywhere I come. This is super important because eventually we're going to get to the place where we begin praying and asking God to do things. Right, like maybe we ask God to provide for us financially, or maybe we ask God to heal someone's sickness, or maybe bring someone through some surgery successfully, or whatever else. Well, we must understand that those future requests that we're going to get to come in the context of us first asking God to make much of himself, to make himself known. God, make much of yourself. Make your name hallowed through the healing of my mom. God, make much of yourself through providing for me my daily bread. We might pray, God, would you flex? Would you flex your power and your glory through healing so-and-so? So that every doctor and nurse would know that there's a God in heaven. It centers the request on God's glory and God's fame and God's reputation, which he cares most about. Whatever we ask for later is subservient to that first request. So what if God gets more fame and his his reputation spreads more? If he denies the request, which one should he do? First and foremost, our deepest desire should be that God's name is made great. That should be the purpose and the reason and the effort of our lives. That the world would know God. The world would see God. That his reputation in the world would be greater because of our witness. Our ultimate concern is not that our lives are comfortable. That is a modern new thing. Most people throughout history have not been comfortable. But air conditioning has ruined us. But praise God for it. Our ultimate concern is not that our lives would be comfortable, but that God would be glorified and that our lives would be put on display for God's glory. We cannot add or take away from God's glory, right? Like, we are not doing things that give God more glory or take some of his glory away. We don't add or take away from any of his glory or any of his holiness. We can simply make it more or less visible. We can simply represent it well or represent it poorly. We can affect his reputation for good or for ill. Right, like how often have people said, I don't go to church or I can't believe in that God because I know this Christian who did this thing. I can't believe in God or go to church because I went to church one time and they did X, Y, or Z. And they said this and they did that. Right? We have hurt the reputation of Jesus because whatever. Because I know there was that pastor who abused that little kid. And therefore, I can't believe that God, that act has hurt and ruined the reputation of Jesus before a watching world. As the church, we are called to be holy. 
We are to be people who are set apart so that when the world sees us, they go, man, those people are different. Those people are very different than me. They're different than anyone I've ever met. Their God must be different too. Man, those people are loving. Those people are kind. Those people are gracious. Those people are just. Those people are patient. They're slow to anger. That must mean their God is those things too. We are not to be set apart by superficial things, right? Like we're not to be set apart because of the clothes we wear or the food we eat or whether we have or don't have tattoos. That's not what sets us apart. We are set apart by our purity. We are set apart by our self-control, by our ability to be reasonable. We are set apart in our patience, in our meekness, in our care for the weak, especially in a world who understands nothing of patience, in a world that understands nothing of purity, of nothing of self-control. Those things set us apart, and they reveal the character and reputation of God. When the world sees us as the church and as individuals, the invisible holiness and glory of God should be made visible in and through us. So the first line, this first request, focuses our attention on God and not ourselves. It makes the prayer God-centered about the things God cares about and not me and the little trivial things that I've got going on. It puts everything in the right perspective. In modern terms, we might not pray, God, make your name hallowed, because we don't use that language anymore. But we might say, God, make much of yourself. Reveal yourself. God, use this situation to show the world who you are. However we pray, we must start and center our prayers on God's glory and God's fame. If the first petition or this first request in prayer is asking God to make his name hallowed or holy in the world, the second petition builds on that by showing us how God's name is hallowed in the world. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer enables us to surrender our lives to God. Prayer enables us to surrender our lives to God. How is God primarily revealing his character and reputation in the world? It is through his kingdom spreading to every corner of the earth. And as citizens of that kingdom, that we do God's heavenly will on earth. One of the church fathers, Augustine, in the 4th century, wrote a book called The City of God, where he deals with how should Christians think about the fall of the Roman Empire, right? So, Roman Empire's just fallen. How should Christians think about it? Rome was the center of the world. It was the center of Christianity, and now it's fallen. How should Christians think about it? He says there are two kingdoms right now, or two cities, he calls them. The city of man and the city of God. The city of man is marked by cruelty and hatred and violence and evil. And the city of God is marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. It's marked by justice. The city of man is inch by inch passing away. While the city of God is expanding inch by inch through every person who comes to Christ, the kingdom grows. Until one day Jesus returns and all that is left will be the city of God and the city of man will be no more. But right now, we live in both cities. We are citizens of the city of God, but living in the city of man. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, understand what we're praying. Understand what Jesus is asking us to pray. We are saying, Jesus, come bring history to a close. We are praying, come vanquish the devil. Come rid the world of evil. We are saying, God, come and bring judgment and judge swiftly and rightly. Let justice reign. Set the world right. We are praying, God, come so that every nation would, leader would bow their knees to you as king and every nation would be undone and there would be one kingdom left. That you would have all authority and be the one true king. It is an acknowledgment. That we in our power cannot bring the kingdom of God. That only God can. It is an acknowledgement that there is no political power, that there is no social good, that nothing brings God's kingdom other than God himself. And this builds on this first request to make God's name holy. Primarily, 
through advancing his kingdom. How was God's name made hallowed? How was it made holy? Through God's kingdom advancing. Do you know what happens when we start praying like this? Like, do you know what happens when you spent the first while of your prayer not just like going through everybody who's sick, but praying, God, make your name great and hallowed and holy and make your fame spread in my life on the bleachers and in my church and in my school and uh, praying like that and then begin to pray that your kingdom would come, that history would end, that your kingdom would take over every other little kingdom here. Well, you know what happens when we start praying like that? It changes you. Like, you don't pray like that fervently and repeatedly and stay the same. It makes the work of your church and your partnership with that church central in your life. You see it as the central vehicle for change in the world. It also changes the way you see the bleachers at the soccer game. Those other parents are no longer just the other parents. But rather, they are parents who belong to the city of man. And you don't just want them to know about the city of man. You want them to know about the city of God. And so you scoot over on the bleachers and you say, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? Because you're compelled to tell them about the most important news in the world. And when you begin to pray like this, it makes you more joyful. It makes you happy. right? When your prayer life is self-focused... It reflects a heart and life that is also self-absorbed. A self-absorbed person does just fine when everything's going their way. A self-absorbed person is doing great when there are no disappointments and when they have everything they want. But when disappointment comes, they get sad. When they don't get everything that they wanted, they get mad. They get depressed. And what do they do? They start blaming everyone else for their problems. And they become a miserable person. This prayer takes the self out, and it puts our vision, our effort, our hopes, our focus, our desires, not on inward self-absorbed things, but in a kingdom that is coming. Jesus-centered things. And it makes you joyful, both in plenty and in want, in good times and in bad. Here's the secret to prayer. Prayer never changes God's mind. It changes you. Prayer, there is not one time that anyone in, in the history of the world has prayed and God th- said, huh, I didn't think about that. Good idea. Let me do that instead. Prayer doesn't change God's mind. It changes you. If prayer was to make God do my will, would that not be some sort of witchcraft? Us harnessing the power of a deity to do my bidding. But prayer is actually about bringing my will in line with God's will. Which is why the last line we look at today says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. We are not asking here that God would accomplish his great purposes. Right? He's going to do that regardless if we pray or not. God is in sovereign, complete control. He's seen the end of history. He's got it planned. He's going to do it. We are asking God to enable others to follow his will, to do the things he desires for them to do. We are asking that other people, ourselves included, would walk in the ways and do the things God wills and wants for us to do. For example, it is God's will that every one of you in this room who are followers of Jesus would be making disciples. Many of you in this room are not doing that. You are out of God's will in that. And this prayer is asking that God would enable us to accomplish his will, to do the things he's asked and called us to do. And it is also a prayer of submission. It is a prayer of telling God what we want to happen and then submitting to what he chooses to do, knowing that whatever he chooses is best. So we might pray, God, please heal my friend. Please heal my friend dying of cancer. Please remove it and heal them. For your glory, for your namesake, flex your glory that the doctors would know that there's a God in heaven, heal them. But not my will be done. But your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is acknowledging that, yeah, we want something. And we are asking God to do it. And that's okay. We should do that. But then we submit that God is wiser than us. 
that God is smarter than us and that whatever he chooses to do is right. Do you know why we worry? Do you know why we experience great worry in our lives? We worry. Worry is this settled belief that God is getting things wrong. We worry because we think God is going to mess it up, that he's getting it wrong. We worry because we're praying and God isn't changing things on our pace or on our schedule. Well, he's not changing the things we've asked him to change or do the things we've asked him to do. And so we're worried that it's all going to go wrong because God is not getting on board with the plan. God, everybody else is on board with the plan. Why aren't you on board with the plan? We begin to worry and spiral and freak out. We feel this great worry in our chest because if we don't get what we want, if we don't get the thing that we think is really important, we believe it'll shatter us, and so we're worried. But do you know why we grow bitter? Why do we grow bitter? We grow bitter. Bitterness is the settled belief that God got it wrong. We grow bitter and angry because we think, how could God allow this? How could God, who says he loves me, let this bad thing happen? We begin to wonder if he cares, wonder if he's paying attention, and we grow bitter thinking that if we were left in charge, we would have handled this differently. If we had all that power, we would have handled it differently. So we grow bitter. But how do we avoid worry and bitterness? We avoid them through prayer. Through praying like David does in the Psalms. You want to learn how to pray? Go read David in the Psalms. David prays these real, heartfelt, emotional, crying out to God, questioning with God, banging his fist on the ground kind of prayers, wrestling with God, doubting God, calling God out, saying, God, how could you do this? How can I trust you? Will you not act? Will you be silent forever? God, where are you? Are you not the God in heaven who's good? Have you not made these promises? Where the heck are you? God, David wrestles with God. really want this God but here is the hardest prayer to pray in the world God I really want you to do this thing I really need this thing right here. I really need you to do this thing but not my will but yours be done you are relinquishing control and saying God I trust you that you're wiser and Gooder is not a word, but you're better than I am. So not my will be done, but yours. The word we want to use there is surrender. We surrender to God with hands open. Here's what I want, but you do what's right. Here's what I think I want, but you do what's right. And surrender isn't defeat. It's trusting that whatever God chooses is best. What a terrifying prayer but also a freeing one, a liberating one, a revolutionary one. Brothers and sisters, do you want to walk closely with Jesus? Do you want to know him intimately? Do you want to live for the city of God, not the city of man? Do you want to understand the heart of Jesus? Do you want to see your life changed? Then I challenge you this. Every day, take as much time as you can muster. Put the TikToks away for 10 minutes. Watch one less show. Get one less hour of sleep and get alone. Remove distractions. Read the scriptures and pray. And maybe just start by praying the Lord's Prayer and pour out your own heart. Pour out your own heart and wrestle with God about things in this life. Wrestle with God. Pray prayers modeled after the Lord's Prayer. Pray that God's name would be made holy in your workplace, in your home. Pray that God's kingdom would come, that people would be saved and be transformed, that our culture would be transformed by his kingdom. Pray that in all things, God's will would be done and that people would follow him and not their own ways. This is a really dangerous prayer. It isn't weak. It isn't generic or simple. It is hard and it is scary and it's not about you, but yet it'll turn your life upside down. That question question is, do you have the guts to pray it? Do you have the courage to pray it? 
Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but make your name holy. Father, make your name holy and bring your kingdom. And here's the things I want, but not my will, yours be done. And I trust you. And whatever you do, it might be hard for me, but I know it's right and good. Do you have the courage to pray that? If you do, your life will change. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you were kind enough to teach us how to pray. You were kind enough to instruct us on how to approach you, to give us the right names and the right titles, and to allow us to call you Father and not just Almighty Supreme Ruler of the Universe. But you let us call you Daddy. Father, would you help us to be a people who pray? And not just when the prayer requests come flooding in because someone is hurt. Yes, we want to pray for those things. Yes. But help us every day to go in secret and shut the door, to leave our phone behind, and to pray that that you would make your name holy and great that you would make much of yourself, that you would show the world what you are like, and that you would use our church to do it, and that you would use the church across the street to do it, and you would use the church right down the street to do it, and that you would use people in their workplaces. You'd use me in our workplace. You'd use me on the bleachers at the soccer game. That you would use my kids in their school. She would use everywhere we go that people would know who you are as they see how we live. And God, bring your kingdom. Let nations crumble and fall before the face of Jesus as he comes to set up a throne and a kingdom that will last forever. May we serve that kingdom and its purposes primarily and fully knowing that the city of man is passing away. Help us to be a people in a church who serve the city of God way more than we serve the city of man. Let us serve what is eternal, not what is passing. If you're in this room this morning and you can't pray these prayers because you don't belong to Jesus, because you can't say Father in heaven because he's not your father, because you've not been adopted into his family through faith in Jesus, As we sing this song, come up and talk to me. I'll stand up here in the front and let me show you how Jesus will make you his own. If you're here this morning and you've got things going on in your life and you want to be able to pray, God, not my will be done, but yours, but you are terrified to pray that prayer because you're not sure what it means. You're not sure what he's going to do and you're not sure if you're going to like it. But maybe you want someone else to pray it first for you. Let me pray that for you. If you're here this morning and you need prayer for anything going on, sometimes it's helpful to let someone else pray over you. Let me do that. Respond however the Spirit leads you. And don't fight him. Listen to him. God, give us courage. In Jesus' name we pray. All people said, let's stand together.